enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of Star Brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is a little different, and it's something that Frankly, I've wanted to do for a while, and if you like it, I'm going to try to continue to do it in the future. And that is, this is a two-part episode. First part is with Kevin Duffy, a guy who I couldn't wait to talk to. Kind of a similar conversation that I've had in the past where it's a feature art, basically a feature story on Kevin, uh, like I like to do every week with certain individuals, you know, diving into their history and what's going on with them and topics that really relate to them as people and as athletes. And then in the second part of this episode, I talked to Sarah Lorge Butler, who is a writer for Runner's World. And this is something that I've wanted to do a lot is... She just wrote a very impactful story last week about women's head coaches in the professional ranks and stories like this of any of any sort. I try to consume so much running media and oftentimes a story or something along those lines really catches my catches my interest, something I really want to take a deep dive into with the author. And I've been thinking, hey, why don't I just make that part of the show? And that is something that I did today. So the second part of the conversation, or I'm sorry, the second part of this episode is a conversation with Sarah diving into kind of how she reported on this story. Obviously, uh, we don't, I don't ask her to kind of recreate the story. You can go read it on Runner's World, uh, and that's why it's there. But talking to the author about this kind of topic, I thought would be um, certainly something that I was interested in doing, and I'd love to hear if you're interested in doing or listening listening to it as well. So uh, I think the best way of gaining your feedback on this is uh, after I post this episode over on Instagram, just write in the comments like, hey, did you like this format? I'd love to hear it. So uh, with all that being said, I do want to shout out one of our sponsors today, and that is Beam. So Beam is a CBD company that's making waves in the wellness industry by offering products that combine THC-free CBD. That's that's hard to say. THC-free CBD and other high-quality products. And that is why I'm so excited to talk, talk to you today about their hydration stuff that they're doing. So these are not CBD products, even though that is Beam's kind of primary charge. These things are unbelievable. So they just launched their first ever non-CBD product called Elevate Hydration. So Elevate Hydration are powders that you put into your water kind of before, during, or after runs. They are fantastic. I really like them. The, the one that comes in before the run has a little caffeine in it. The one that comes after the run has a little collagen in it. And they also have another that has some probiotics. These are so good. So many of us like to consume these types of products on the run or before the run. I know I have done this for years and Beam has really created a high level product. So if you go over to their website, which is Beam, B-E-A-M, tlc.com and use code rambling runner you'll be able to save 15% on your first order i like the multi pack so you get kind of like five or six of five six powders of each of the three I think that's a nice thing, especially if you're new to the product. I think the multi-pack is good. I think ultimately I like the before product the best, just because that's typically when I like to have these is before the run, little caffeine shot, little electrolytes and some water feels great, fits into my schedule and it really does the trick. So let's get into it first with Kevin Duffy and then Sarah Lorge Butler. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. 
I'm so excited to get you on. You are somebody who I feel like is a very passionate guy. Like You are very passionate about your beliefs, about the things going on in your life, which is exactly the kind of thing that we like to have here on the show. So before we get started, Kevin, what's your athletic life looking like? What's your athletic life looking like right now? Uh, so my athletic life right now is I am currently back in training. I was uh, sidelined for a little bit with a neck and a back injury to start the year. Uh, I started off the year with COVID also. So that kind of put me out of commission for two weeks um, and was feeling a little run down. But right now, um, back in action, getting back into my regular routine, I am currently signed up for uh, Ironman Lake Placid in July this year. So uh, that will be my sixth Ironman. Uh, fingers crossed here under the table that, you know, how things unfold here in the next few months will determine whether we race or not. But I got a pretty good feeling. Um, so I've been running a lot. Uh, I've been doing a lot of indoor riding on my trainer. Uh, and I just signed back up uh, at the pool at the local YMCA up in Rye, New York, and uh, getting back in the pool uh, has been great uh, for that. So that is my uh, current current plan. I know here on the on a running podcast, it's always about kind of what we're signed up for, what we got in the pipeline, and what we're training, what we're doing. So, um, yeah, I had uh, you know a rough start to 2021, but I feel uh, great. Uh, my health is great. Uh, I feel good. And uh, just, you know, getting getting over that hump and back to my, you know, what my normal routine is, which, you know, hopefully the, some of the listeners are, you know, are kind of athletes and runners and fitness enthusiasts. But to, you know, to some of the world, most of the world, people have to remind me that my normal is not normal. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, what I get my high off of in, in terms of working out is a little different than other people. So I have to, it's, it's good to remember that, right? To check in with yourself that, uh, you know, I tend to do a lot and I have to remember that it's okay if, if, you know, you take a day off and rest days are just important as, you know, your hard days. So. Right. And when you're coming back from injury, there's a lot of rest days. <laughs> it feels like there's there's almost too many of them. I can certainly relate to that recently. So when you're in that situation where like you're coming back from an injury and you're starting to round the corner, I don't know how you feel about this situation, but I know I get in the situation where I'm like, man, I wasted it. When I was healthy, if I had known what I know now, I would have done X, Y, Z, maybe more or better. I always forget those lessons as soon as I get healthy. It's like I have amnesia about those sorts of recollections. <laughs> but are you are you noticing that now as you're you're starting to ramp up? Yes, you definitely take your health for granted when you are healthy, whether physically or you know in terms of sickness. Uh, but especially with an injury. Uh, this was a neck and a back injury, which was, you know, a trauma injury um, at work. I, I whacked my head. It was kind of a stupid accident. But the after effects of kind of the, you know, the nodding that set in and the, the cramping and uh, spasms in my back was, uh, you know, it's, it, it reminds you that you, you can't take your health for granted. So all those days of last year of running and being healthy and kind of getting up and doing what I wanted whenever I wanted, uh, you know, you look back and you go, oh man, yeah, I should have maybe done a little more or I should have appreciated, 
going out for a 30 minute run or a 10 minute run, even though that doesn't seem like much, but when you can't do anything, uh, you definitely, you definitely appreciate your physical health for sure as an athlete and a runner and, and all that stuff. So. So were you able to to stay at work? I know you're you're known as the vegan firefighter. So were you able to actually still engage at work, or were you at home just like not working and not training? And I don't think that can be talk about being in your own head. I was out of work, home resting. So it was the chiropractor. Uh, I was going to an orthopedic, uh, getting massages, acupuncture, cupping, foam rolling, uh, and then as I sort of got some mobility back, I was back doing some yoga. Uh, but I was out of work for a little while, so that I was not participating in work. Uh, so I was out on on injury leave, and yeah, really just uh, getting accustomed to resting, <laughs> which is hard for me to do. Uh, my brother even made a joke. He said, "Your apartment must be wondering what you're doing home all the time because <laughs> being quarantined and then being hurt, uh, you know, I'm a I like to run around and and be active, obviously, and, and get out a lot. So it was. It was a new normal for me to to rest and uh, and heal. So, were you always an active guy? I I was. Yeah, I'm. I've been an athlete my whole life. Growing up playing sports, uh, basketball. Uh, I did run a little track in grammar school. Uh, so a little cross country in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and. Um, I played a lot of street hockey, and then that got into into high school. I played ice hockey and lacrosse, uh, and then I played a little football. And then in college, I went to college and played lacrosse uh, D two. So I was always an athlete in terms of you know running and triathlons and Ironmans and marathons. That didn't start until about six years ago. Um, so I, yeah, I've always been active. It's just I've sort of switched gears and and fallen in love with the endurance game. So the sports that you mentioned, besides like the little bit of track, um, those are all contact sports yes. various to, to various degrees. So was that something that is that part of what lured you to those sports or was that or was it more just like, you know, being on a team and those were just the popular sports at your school? Uh, ba- basketball, I grew up with two older brothers growing up and uh, we were all always playing basketball out on the street on the hoop. And, you know, down at our local park with friends. Uh, and then I picked, then it was half our court at Schultz Field in, in Yonkers' basketball courts. And the other half was a, was street hockey cages. So there's always guys playing and rollerblades came out in the 90s. And we were rollerblading and I picked up a hockey stick. And then, then I tried out for hockey in high school, not really having played organized hockey. But yeah, the contact sports were fun. Lacrosse was something my older brother Chris played. Uh, in high school and then taught me to play. So we were kind of, you know, he was training me in the backyard in seventh, eighth grade, kind of, we didn't have local youth programs around here yet back in the nineties. So I had a little bit of an edge going into high school, having gotten my butt kicked in the backyard by my brother, uh, who was also learning the sport. So I was sort of his, uh, you know, his (laughs) rag doll. (laughs) And uh, that got me into lacrosse. And then so hockey, lacrosse, very similar. But yeah, loved the team sports, loved uh, the contact sports, which is funny. I'm a pretty tall guy now. But in the first two, three years of high school, I was like five, 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 six, you know, little skinny twerp. Uh, but I graduated at like six, one. So there's a big change uh, in the contact sports. But uh, yeah, and now getting into this sort of running triathlon, very independent, single, 
you know, solo sports has been is is fun too. It's a, it's just a whole different experience, a whole different challenge because it's just you, right? It's you versus you, and and versus the field. But there's no, you know, the team aspect is is a little less. You can obviously train with buddies and race with buddies, so that's always fun. But um, yeah, it's a different mindset to get up every day and and do the things for yourself. Yeah, I mean, shoot, even the team atmosphere has gone from your athletic life to now your professional life, right? I mean, being a firefighter is like, it's the ultimate team uh, endeavor. And it's, it's interesting to see from, from an athletic standpoint, you really going after these, not only, you know, are, are these you know, swimming, biking and, and running, you're kind of a solo endeavors, but you're doing them for a lot longer than a lot of other people are doing them. When you're talking about Ironman triathlons and things of that nature. So when you first started down this path, of endurance sports, what precipitated that move? So it all started about maybe 12 years ago. It was 2008, so 13 years ago, 2007 or eight, my younger sister uh, branched out and started training with a, with a team, ironically, in the, you know, in these sports team and training, raising money for uh, their causes. And uh, she was living in the city and was training to do a, uh, an Olympic triathlon in Westchester. And I went and watched with my family and I was like, this is such a cool sport. Watching them come out of the water, get on the bike, do the transition. And then coming down the finisher shoot, we we're, you know, running alongside the fence and, and cheering her on. And then I think I looked to my, my mom or, or a buddy. And I was like, I want to do this next year. This seems like fun. And then, so I started doing a couple of Olympics, just for fun, right? Like once a year, the one here up in Rye and Playland. And that was it. It was kind of like an end of the summer goal. Uh, was, you know, I was racing in mesh shorts and like basketball sneakers and a t-shirt and a cotton t-shirt. I have to interrupt. I have a- to interrupt. So when you, you mentioned that, cause when <laughs> I started running, I used to do the same thing. So I played basketball in college. Actually, I played with two guys from Yonkers. No uh, believe it or not, uh, Nick Matarasso. Actually, the other guy I knew played volleyball was uh, Joe Rukai. Um, and uh, I graduated college in 2003. Okay, same year. That's how that works yeah. from a timing perspective. But um, so when I did it, it was more like a point of pride. Like, I am not going to wear the little shorts. I'm a basketball <laughs> player. I am not one of these little... <laughs> Little runners. I mean, I'm a little. I'm five nine. I'm not this tall guy. But um, so was it? Was it more about that? About like maintaining that? Like this is the kind of athlete I am, uh, or was it just a byproduct of like, hey, I I just don't want to buy the gear. Well, it was kind of looking at guys like, what are you doing in all that spandex? Like, what's <laughs> the point of that? You look ridiculous, right? Coming down the finisher shoot in your in your tight shorts and your the unzipped racing top. And all the gear, I was like, is this stuff really worth it, right? So it was kind of a point of, that's not me. I'm not wearing that stuff. I'm not buying it. And uh, I can get this done kind of in my own style. And then looking back now, it's hysterical to see those photos because I'm with a couple of buddies one year uh, at the finish line. And they're in the gear. They were actually, I think, racing with team and training. So they had matching stuff. And one guy kicked my butt, a guy from high school. And I was like, dude, you you went like all out, huh? You got like the whole thing. And, you know, obviously I started slowly switching over <laughs> all my gear. But initially, yeah, I was just running, kind of not understanding what the purpose of all that stuff was. Or like, you know, obviously the a smart person who races and does this stuff for a long time figured out the most comfortable and effective way to race. So when you were getting into it, Kevin, were you... Um, 
Was it about just trying to stay active or were there certain parts of triathlon or, or the certain aspects within triathlon that really like that you were getting excited about? Or was it just a matter of like, I'm an athlete, I got to find some way to stay active? Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Like it was cool to see the race go down. Um, so that part was exciting and just all the people cheering for you. Um, but initially it was just, yeah, to mix up kind of the the normal routine that I had been doing of, um, you know, I might have been running a little bit, but it was probably 20 or 30 minutes a couple times a week. Uh, and I was probably just like lifting weights and just doing, you know, that, that old school routine. And it was really a way to just mix up my, my routine and set a goal and have sort of somewhat of a mapped out plan. I mean, back then, I don't think I had any clue what I was doing, but it was, you know, run three times a week and bike three times a week. And if I can find the pool, that's like an added bonus. Cause I've, I've spent the summers on the beaches. And so I always love, I'm a surfer. Um, and I always enjoyed swimming, but I never did it competitively. So that part was like cool trying to learn something new. Um, and biking, I never really I had really been a bike person other than like, you know, as a kid on a, on a BMX bike, stuff like that. So yeah, it was just to to break up a, a monotonous routine and kind of mix in some new, some new sports to the to the plan. And here you are, man. You know, hunting down Ironmans and putting in you know hours and hours and hours on race day. So was that an evolutionary process for you, or was it a revolutionary process where there was a paradigm shifting moment? Uh, it was pretty evolutionary for the first. Um, you know, so that was like 2007, 2008 was the first race I did. Um, and then over the years, I kind of just did one, that same one every year. And then they have a few out in Long Island that are the same Olympic distance that were fun. And it, maybe it was two times, you know, one year I might have done two of them because they were, you know, very fall, late summer, fall scheduled. So they're kind of near each other. Uh, so once you train for one, you can kind of do another one, you know, a couple weeks later and, and still hold the fitness. And it was in 2013 was when a buddy of mine uh, had, had gotten into it. My best, one of my best friends, Steve, had gotten into uh, triathlon as well, sort of right around the same time as me. It's like I think he might have been at the race with my sister or, or I went home and was tell, talking about it. And he was an athlete as well, a basketball player at Holy Cross. And he was like, yo, we got to get into this. And so, but he took it to another level quicker and got real into it. So he had signed up for a half Ironman and I obviously thought he was crazy and I wasn't going to do twice the distance of an Olympic. But in 2013, when I signed, I signed up for my first that year. And so I spent the summer training for a half and that was really like the big goal, the big bucket list item for me at the time. Uh, and so we raced the mighty Montauk out in Montauk, uh, in like late September, October, 2013. And I did it and I did pretty well. You know, my goal was to beat five hours. And I think I came in at like four fifty nine and change and like dove across the finish line. And that was it. I was like, I did it. I survived. Um, I did pretty well. I was happy with my results. And then about a month later, uh, he had told me he signed up for Lake Placid in July 2014. So I was like, all right, I'm in. Because <laughs> it was, you know, I did the the half and I thought to myself, well, it didn't kill me. It was kind of fun. I mean, obviously, it, it hurts at times. And 
was like, I'll never know what the full distance will feel like unless I, I sign up. So that's, I mean, that's sort of my mentality now. And I think for most people is unless you, unless I have a plan or a goal, I'm kind of not mindlessly training, but I do, you know, I'll have a somewhat of a normal weekly routine, but there's nothing really pushing you or, you know, hanging over your shoulder. So what for me, once I sign up, the credit card gets charged, then I'm like, all right, I'm in. Now I'm focused. Now I have to do this. I have to write out a plan and, uh, and get to work. So do you, do you race outside of the state of New York, Kevin? Cause every single race that you have mentioned has been in the state of New York. <laughs> yeah. Long Island, Montauk, uh, upstate New York. I do. I've done, um, I've done Chicago marathon twice. Uh, I've done no once I've done the Philly marathon. Uh, I've done New York city twice. I've done Boston marathon twice, but, uh, with their fire department through a charitable organization, I did not qualify for that yet. Um, but another bucket list item and I've, yeah, I've raced out of the state, uh, Ironman, Texas in 2015 and, uh, Ironman Montremblant in 2016. So I've done a, a little bit of traveling for races for sure. Oh, for sure. Oh, that's great. You've certainly, you know, you, you, you've done a lot of stuff that a lot of people would put as bucket list races, right? A lot of those things, um, a lot of people want to do at some point in their life. And, and you've been able to do that. And it really is a testament to, to the fitness you put in and all the training you have done. And, and for you, it seems like your training is inextricably linked with your nutrition. And you're very passionate about um, someone who you know does eat on a plant-based diet and someone who not only does it from a like a position of health, but it's a, you it's clear that you thrive in trying to make it, you know, extremely tasty and healthy and, and you want to pass along the benefits and the tastes uh, that come along with that. Um, Considering your background and, and where you're from, I would assume that this isn't necessarily uh, passed down to you from your parents. No, it is not. Uh, but you summed it up very well in terms of uh, doing this from what I've learned and how I've transformed my life and my health and my fitness and just showing other people what I did and how I do it and, and what it looks like on a day-to-day basis. Um, so no, it was not passed down. I mean, I grew up in a, a very typical American household and my mom was a great cook, five kids and had me, you know, food on the table every night looking back now. And it was, you know, your classic meatballs and spaghetti and roasted chickens and steak and potatoes. And, uh, I lived most till I was my teenager on cereal, you know, raisin bran, frosted flakes, three meals a day. I was a very plain, bland eater. I didn't like a whole lot of uh, flavor. Uh, so this was a, you know, part of my training uh, is where sort of the transition happened in terms of how to get better and faster. And it was my buddy Steve, uh, who I trained with. Uh, who had who had turned me on to kind of you know that being our missing link into you know once we got into the triathlon and the Ironman's a little more serious we were blown away at, at the times people could put up and uh, you know trying to look at to gain a competitive edge so that's what led us down that path uh, and and following other athletes uh, who do the same and just learning from them so it's like if those guys can do it then I can do it and I you know I want to show other people you know, what, just what it looks like and, and some of the benefits to it. Um, so definitely not learned. I've gotten my mom on board uh, about three years ago um, to kind of 
you know, go mostly plant-based. My dad is very uh, aware of what he eats now in the last three years. Um, So they understand it, uh, you know, and that's everybody's journey in terms of, you know, what your commitment to it is or how it works for you uh, day to day. But uh, yeah, it's just my, my whole mission, especially being a fireman, uh, that was, that's been part of the big realization is looking back at to what I was eating for the first five years on the job and to what I've been eating the last five years, uh, and how much that changed and how much that plays a part of, you know, our physical health and, you know, the, the community as a whole in terms of that, that workplace and the, you know, the stereotype and, and just, you know, I was there mindlessly eating for, the, you know, the first five years, but for most of my life, just, you you just, I had never heard it or, or seen it or understood it. So when that, you know, I, I gained that knowledge and information, I was like, oh, wow, this makes a lot of sense. So let me, let me help other people kind of learn about this because it's, it's very interesting how, you know, how it rolls into all aspects of life and how it can help so many people in so many different ways. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence, uh, but it's it's legit and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that Getting my vitamins and minerals from from foods is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. Hey, everybody, do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want 
There's so many options and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today. It's $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179 today. That's up to $104 value. So let's talk about the process that you learned this, because you mentioned that this was the missing ingredient for you and your friend Steve, and, and you would come across people who had had a similar experience, were just further along the path than you were at that point. I guess, first thing first, how did you become aware that this was a missing ingredient for you? So my buddy Steve Quinn put me on to Rich Roll's podcast about, it's almost six years ago. And we listened to one episode with David Carter, who was a former linebacker in the NFL, also known as the 300-pound vegan, and how he had, in the offseason, he was dealing with a lot of inflammation and chronic uh, pain and joint pain and arthritis, and he was like in his early 20s. Uh, and I listened to that one episode, and I was like, wow this is impressive. Like this is all this guy did was just pay attention to what he's eating. And, all, and a lot of these, you know, issues just started going to the wayside, but getting stronger, faster, fitter. He got, you know, he stripped himself down and built himself back up. It was like a total overhaul. Um, so following, following Rich was a big, you know, kind of a role model in, in terms of what he, what he had done and reading his book and learning his journey. And then that led me into uh, finding Rip Esselstein, who was a fireman in Texas and his father's a doctor and worked at the, ran the Cleveland clinic for a while and put people on. His plan. dad is very famous in that space. Yeah. Caldwell Esselstein is like one of the pioneers behind doing the actual studies and proving, uh, you know, showing the results for patients on, you know, most with a lot of the, the common American, uh, you know, standard American diseases from the standard American diet are, obesity, heart disease, you know, high blood pressure, cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, and showing that, you know, a lot of these patients of his were reversed and, you know, shown better health uh, from just what they were eating and put, putting them on a routine. So that was, a, that was sort of my guy was Rip being a fireman. He was a college swimmer. He was a pro triathlete for a while. I was like, oh, this, I could do this. This is like, he, this guy already mapped it out for me. Right. So um, just you're just following along and, and learning from those guys and, and putting it into practice. Uh, Let me jump in there, because it, it sounds like you didn't have this moment like, OK, like Rich talks about his moment of like how his how sobriety and, and going vegan kind of coalesced into like this. I need to make a change moment. And we'll talk about like his path to veganism was was a slow burn. Right. Being a vegetarian. Then he was just like. The unhealthy vegetarian, right? You can eat extremely unhealthily as a vegetarian, right? It's not as if vegetarian means healthy. Like that's not, they can, but it doesn't have to be, right? Um, but yet it sounds like you were very active, right? You have this active job, you have these active hobbies. So what about that point in your life? Like besides getting this information, which is obviously critical, 
why did that information um, manifest change for you as opposed to being like, oh, that's interesting, but I'm not necessarily going to adopt that habit? Yeah, I'd say it was it was a quick transition that summer of 2015. And it was, you know, listen to a few podcasts. Uh, and then I was on the bike training for uh, Tremblant. And it was like Netflix. So it was like one documentary, you know, long hour rides, two hour rides. It was like one documentary. They recommend this documentary, recommend this movie. And I was like, wow. And I just absorbed as much information as I could get my hands on. And it was leading me down all different paths, whether it was for your health, it was for the animals, it was for the environment. It was, you know, the, the food system as a whole. So it was all these different uh angles of like okay that's messed up okay it's better for that okay it's better for me i feel better uh and it was i told myself i would which is funny i told myself i would do 30 days after tremblant because i didn't want to change too many things because i thought i would fall apart in the race <laughs> which is so funny now so i was like eating a little bit of cheese i was still having a little bit of meat back that that summer leading up to it but i was i was definitely trending in that direction uh and then once the race was over i did i think september that year I went, I did 30 days, see how I would feel, cut out all the animal products and then really just simplified my, my routine and it, and it, and it worked. And then I was like, Oh wow, this, this makes sense. And so it was ideally for, for my health, really, I saw the benefits health wise, long, long term. Um, and then, but it was, you know, the, the way we started, Steve and I started was for, for, to gain an edge. Um, and then as you, we, you know, collected that information and processed it, it seemed, I was like, okay, this is something that, you know, this is something I need to follow, you know, as close as I can, uh, forever. And, and as I, as time went on, it was, you know, I just, I don't know, I made it, I made it my routine and stuck with it. All right. So truth be told, I will say that I am not plant-based, but after getting uh, a recent set of um, a blood test through Inside Tracker, and I'm actually I have a podcast coming out in two days. It details it, and I talk with a um, a registered dietitian who works through Inside Tracker and, and all of that. And having another podcast that just came out with a friend of mine, Tommy Runs, who's a vegan. Um, you know, I'm I'm starting down that path. Cool. Uh, I know I didn't. I purposely didn't share that with you before we hopped on the show. So, like right now. Basically, what I'm doing is up until like dinner time. So we have two kids. We have two young kids and then my wife. So they're finicky. My wife, you know, it, she eats healthy, but, you know, she does enjoy like having having meat. We've, we've had that as well. So I'm incorporating plant-based as much as I can at dinner, but I'm not like by the book on it. And then, but the rest of the day, I'm pretty much trying to do that. So this started a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And it's interesting because even within that, I can see that there's variances about how to do this right. And there's, you know, it's not like once you're in it, it's you're, you're doing it just fine. Because it's funny, like I found myself like I wasn't necessarily eating more vegetables. I wasn't like being as healthy as I could be despite making this change, right? I was arguably, I wouldn't say just as unhealthy, but I was doing it in a way that probably wasn't necessarily benefiting me as much as it could have, right? So I was leaning on a lot of like, I was leaning on a lot of whole grains and a lot of nuts and a lot of fruit, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things, but I definitely wasn't like, hey, I'm going to really up my vegetable intake. Like that really <laughs> didn't change at all. Well, that's good, man. Congrats to you for for taking the the jump. 
and and starting out that's probably the hardest part and you know the scariest part for most people is just is trying and starting and and sticking with it but like you said no one has to be perfect um i think you know for myself as an extremist i challenged myself to 30 days which didn't seem that hard but i knew it would be challenging and uh, it's, you know, I, I try and help people with make one, you know, if you change one meal a day, if you do breakfast for a week, then that's seven meals that you've already made a change. And if you can do, uh, learn one new recipe a week, right. Or something like that. So those little compounding changes over time will definitely add up to a new routine and better habits and, uh, just, you know, getting the ball the momentum rolling in that direction is is probably the hardest for most people. So I applaud you and your efforts with two young ones and a wife to, yeah, there's more people in the house to, you know, to cater to and, and to work around. So that I'm sure makes it challenging for you. Yeah. Well, you know, the little kids, they're like, <laughs> like again, they're like, they're like, there's six things. Yeah. And it's like, if I take three of those away, I'm making this, this is not helping anybody. You're screwed. You're dealing with two terrorists <laughs> in the house. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I negotiate with them all the time, constantly, <laughs> constant negotiations. Um, so it's funny. So I, I'm thinking about this. So you mentioned you, you do the 30 days and you viewed it as a performance edge from an athletic standpoint, right? This wasn't like, I viewed it like, Hey, my cholesterol is 310. It's like, that's not where I want to be. Again, genetically, I probably have higher cholesterol than the average person. Like if you go back to like high school, like my cholesterol was a little bit higher than you would expect. Some of this is genetic anyway. So no one's completely starting from the same level. With that said, it's trending in the wrong direction, which is an, which is more impactful than just like where it is from a static perspective. And then other things as well, right? I, my whole lipid profile is a disaster. And that's with someone who's actually exercising. So, you know, there's only two things that I can't, I can't change my genetics. I'm already exercising. What's the only option left? Um, so you mentioned that you did this from an athletic perspective, though. So you wanted to, to perform better. So how did you feel and how did you start to feel once you'd made this transition? So I noticed uh, just, just having more energy uh, and, and then just changing that relationship with food to looking at it as fuel, right? So as I should eat and be, you know, obviously you're not going to work out after you have lunch or breakfast. You want to save that as sort of your recovery. But looking at it as how do I give myself the best nutrients and minerals and all those things that are going to help repair my muscles and, and feed my blood uh, all the good stuff that it needs to deliver to, uh, you know, the repairing process for better sleep, for, you know, to bounce up in the morning and get back in the pool or on the bike. So I noticed, I mean, I noticed a lot of things. My, you know, obviously I lost weight is one of the beneficial side effects. Uh, I think my heaviest I remember seeing, which was probably about 10 years ago, uh, before the fire department even, or maybe my first year on was like close to 240. Uh, and I'm 6'2". So I'm, I trend now around 190. Uh, so I was at the time I was probably 215. So I I'd, I'd noticed weight was coming off. Uh, my skin cleared up, which was a, you know, so I had, you know, definitely, uh, I don't say acne, but definitely some stuff that could work on as an athlete and you're sweating and you're wearing those clothes all the time and you just get, you know, spots all over your body, your back and stuff and your legs. Uh, so I noticed that cleared up digestion, uh, was always an issue for me as a kid, probably because I lived on sugary cereal, 
but I noticed just more, you know, regular motion in, in my digestion. And just, I think, you know, you everybody's always concerned about like, don't your joints hurt and your knees hurt from all the running you do. But a lot of that is attributed to inflammation. But a lot of that was the extra weight I was carrying around. So you figure, you know, people lose five pounds, seven pounds, they don't think it's a big deal. I always tell people put that seven pounds in a backpack and then go do your normal day. And that's spread out across your body. You know, it's not condensed into one heavy weight. Um, so just, I mean, the, the I noticed a lot of positive changes and it was like little by little looking back now and, and you know, obviously before and after pictures help to remind you of that too. Um, but which is funny, I never really noticed my, um, my blood work because I guess that was something I never really paid attention to at the doctor or ever really followed up on. I guess I was always pretty normal. Uh, but I do remember a doctor telling me about five or six years ago at the start of this saying, I think I was around 220. It's like, you could use to lose, you could use to lose a little bit of weight because you're on the borderline of, you know, like being uh, obese. And I was like, what are you out of your mind? I was like, I'm a fireman and I lift like three days a week and I run a little bit and I eat, you know, the normal stuff. Uh, but I was, he was like, yeah, you're 22% body fat or whatever. And if you're over 25, I think is the range for being pre-diabetic or, or obese, whatever that body mass index rating was. And I was like in the middle range where he's like, you want to be below 20. You don't want to be over 25. So I was floating in that uh, space. That's, and that's that where was, I'm, I, I've, I've like set up a nice little estate in that range. Right now. <laughs> yeah. I've been living in there for a while. <laughs> So I was like, I kind of looked at him like, what are you, nuts? And now looking back, I've, I've, I've switched doctors, but I'm always curious to wonder, you know, what my, my charts are like. It's something I never really paid attention to. But for someone like yourself, yeah, those lab results are, are a key indicator to like your internal health. So understanding that too, you can, you can look great on the outside. You can seem fit. You can do all the things, you know, everybody wants to show muscles, the abs and the, and the biceps. Uh, but until you get, you know, a real check engine light, and a, and a real diagnostic uh, result of what's going on internally. That's really the marker of, of true health. So th- learning all that stuff along the way has been helpful and, and a good, good reason to stay on track. So, uh, but back to your question. Yeah, I, I, more energy. I felt like I could train a little bit harder um, and not really worry about, you know, I shouldn't say not worry about recover, but definitely recovering better, sleeping better, training harder on the hard days and, and resting well on my off days. Now, how has your food choices changed as you've been a plant-based eater? Like I I brought up my example before, like in some ways it's changed in some ways it really hasn't, right? I'll have some vegetables at dinner. That's about it. Right. So, and I'm aware that this needs to change, but you know, that, that, that just kind of potentially comes with the process and I just have to do better. How has it changed for you going through this process? Uh, it's changed a lot. So like I said, someone who was a real boring, typical kid who didn't like anything, uh, it's really expanded my, <laughs> my view of the produce section in the supermarket and looking for stuff that I wouldn't normally eat or try or, or have tasted before. So it's a learning process and I've definitely... Uh, enjoy cooking more now and and be trying to find creative ways to replicate flavors of things you know that you know I used to like or enjoy or sort of those comfort foods 
Uh, and it's funny, I always see a picture, it's like, you know, there's 40,000 edible plants on the planet and we eat, this, we eat the same four animals every day, right? So the variety uh, is, is, is endless, um, but it's definitely created a little bit of uh, passion and, and creativity and cooking and it's, it's something I'm doing now uh, online and working with a, uh, a yoga platform to do live cooking classes to just show people how I make my food and, and make it tasty and enjoyable without uh, some of the stuff that, you know, is limiting to our health. What are some of your go-to meals now? So my go-to meals now, last night we made a, a veggie chili uh, on the cooking show. And I enjoy, like my, my go-to is a smoothie every morning. So I do a banana with almond butter and, uh, and a plant-based protein. And I'll put in some greens, some spinach or kale or cauliflower, almond milk. Uh, so that's usually my go-to if I work out in the morning uh, or even if I don't, just putting that in a, in a big jar and, and blending it up and taking it on the road, either if I'm going out for the day or just going into work. Uh, lunch. Lunch is sometimes it could be another smoothie again if I'm just, you know, don't feel like cooking or it's usually leftovers from the night before. So if I have rice and beans or quinoa with an avocado, some roasted veggies or sauteed veggies uh, is a good is a good lunch or and or dinner meal. So kind of interchanging those veggie pasta. Um, I've been very aware of my gluten intake. I'm not gluten free. I do enjoy uh, an IPA from time to time. So I'm not sober either. Um, so that is sort of my one last little um, piece of the puzzle that I know is obviously not helping me achieve my athletic peak, I would think, since it is. I don't is. know. That, that, that's one thing that's, that's <laughs> tough, though, because there are plenty of studies about like the benefits of that alcohol can provide somebody. Again, not all not, not that all alcohol is the same, right? right? Like there's plenty of studies that say, hey, if you have a glass of wine, that actually is helpful for you. And I got to um, read more of those studies to uh, <laughs> convince myself it's not bad. Well, then the other thing, too, is that like sometimes like, you know, especially with, with those sorts of behaviors, there are certain behaviors that can just lead to other behaviors, right? So it's like, okay, like I have this, but then it makes me want to do this other thing, right? So there's like, there can be a domino effects to sometimes um, certain habits or some of the habits can like, can stop a domino effect, right? Like they say like, you know, it's like that whole like make your bed in the morning movement. It's like, if you do that, it's not like, who cares if your bed's made? It doesn't really matter. It's about like, if you do this, then it will help you do all these other things. As opposed to going going the other way. Yeah, and everything's spiraling out of control for the rest of the day, right? It, it creates good habits and discipline. Um, so, yeah, my, my routine is, is pretty simple, but I try and mix it up and get creative with, with cooking for sure. Um, and it's definitely evolved. I think um, early on it was, you know, obviously a learning process of, of trying to keep keep it really simple. I just remember eating a lot of rice and beans with like an avocado on top and hot sauce and then maybe mixing in. I have a, I have like an enormous platter of that in my fridge right now because I was like, I know I can make this. Yeah. That's like an easy one to, which is funny. is like, how do I make rice? I'm like, oh, you're just boiling it. You just have to get the water <laughs> and the rice portions, right? And then not make it too hot and just let it simmer. So it's like funny things like that. It's like, wow, like, I didn't know how to make rice like 10 years ago, but now it's easy. Set it and and forget it. And uh, and yeah, stuff like having that always on hand. Um, 
you know, I try, I do eat some, some processed foods in terms of in the, you know, in the plant-based world that are, you know, they're, they're good bridger foods, right? They're, they're coming out and showing people what's available and, um, you know, you try and get good sourced stuff and the less ingredients, the better, but I do have that stuff from time to time. So it's not like I'm eating, you know, perfectly all the time. I do indulge in a little bit of that unhealthy plant-based stuff from time to time. So when you're at like your peak training, right? So you're training for, you're basically starting the process of, of re, you know, getting back into training mode for Ironman Lake Placid. When you're at peak training, you're obviously in, and combine that with your job, like you're going to be burning a ton of calories in a day. So when you're peak training, what are some of the things that you're including into your diet to make sure that you're getting enough calorically dense food that will help you not only, you know, perform at your best, but also recover at your best that you might not necessarily need as much when you're, you know, recovering from an injury, you're not quite being as active. Uh, yeah, when I'm peak training, it's definitely a lot of carbs. So it's a lot of pasta, it's a lot of potatoes, um, a lot of whole grains, uh, and then trying to incorporate as many sort of leafy greens and green vegetables into and color into those meals. Um, and again, like I said, my depending on how hard my workout was of the day, if it, if it's a long bike, if it's a long Saturday morning with a two or three hour ride or a four hour ride coming down the road. Uh, in my plan, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're not famished, but you're hungry all day. So it's just being conscious of that and, and bringing in um, good calories when you're hungry and not you know, sort of limiting yourself. So get big recovery smoothie, then I might have maybe some oatmeal or something after that, or having a healthy snack and protein bites or a protein bar um, in the middle of the day, then having a having a lunch and getting and having a big dinner, maybe enjoying a beer with my big dinner um, Saturday night, and uh, definitely prepping for those days also. So off days, I'm eating. I'm not as hungry. You know, I'm not burning as much. I'm not as uh, I don't trigger the you know the hunger signals as much. Um, so and being aware of that it's you know I try and follow rule. If I have an off day, and or I haven't. You know, I'm, I had a big dinner after a regular normal training day and a work day, a big dinner into the morning. If that's, a, if that's sort of a sleep in day or a rest day, I'm not really that hungry. So I pay attention to that. So I'm not, you know, mindlessly eating also on top of it. That was a big learning thing I learned was, you know, when I first started uh, getting into doing the half and doing my first full, I was eating whatever I wanted at work because I was like, oh, this is great. I'm burning you know, 1500 calories a day between running and biking and swimming on, on, you know, if there, if days were, if there was double days or a a run in the morning and a swim at night, it was like, I would eat double dinner, but it was the wrong stuff. And I was like, this is fine. I'm going to run it off. So just a a good example of that, like you can't outrun your, your plate. It's always going to catch up with you. Um, and it's, and I was trying to do that or thought I could, and they, and that's sort of what opened my eyes because it was just like a ceiling, right? It was a governor on my on my body limiting my performance because it was just, you know, you can work harder and harder and harder, but if you offset it with sort of stuff that isn't going to fuel you and repair you, you're kind of just banging your head against the wall. 
and you can't outrun your plate because the more you run, the hungrier you're going to get. It's not like your hunger stays here. And you're like, I just keep running. Now I've, I've exceeded. It's like, no, no, no. Here comes the hunger. And the other thing, too, is that like nothing makes again wild generalization. Nothing makes me hungrier than a long bike ride. Not that I do it a ton, but it's funny. Like I am not nearly as hungry after a long run than a long bike ride, even if I ride the same amount of time that I'm running. So I'm running. It burns more calories. I should be hungrier. I mean, because I'm jostling around. I don't know. But nothing is like a bike ride. I, I will be hungry for 36 hours after a long bike ride. Yeah, long bike rides definitely. I it, it almost opens the door to like, how much can I eat for the rest of the day? Because I know it's it's coming, and you're gonna just have whatever you want. But trying to you know having it mapped out or uh, meals ready to go or an idea of where you're gonna you know I look forward to like certain places to go out to eat and be like, all right, I'm gonna smash everything on that menu at dinner because you know we did a, a two-hour bike workout this morning or whatever it was so yeah for sure the bike rides definitely definitely bring on the hunger i feel like i could talk to you for another hour i feel like we just started i feel like <laughs> we've been talking for over an hour already thank you so much for your time um i feel like i'm cutting it short even though technically i'm not i'm looking at the clock right now like we've been talking for a long time uh with that said before we get going, you mentioned before, you know, you're, 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 you are showcasing some, some cooking stuff online. Where can people go if they're interested in that or just interested in you? Yeah, if you're interested in me, you can follow me. Um, you know, I'm pretty active on Instagram is the vegan fireman KD, my initials. Um, and the cooking class is every Tuesday in March. And we might be extending into April. And that's at OMSTARS is a yoga platform, O-M-S-T-A-R-S.com. Um, and there's a code, uh, you know, I can give you for 30 days free trial that they're doing. Um, and you guys tune in Tuesday nights. We have a Zoom class and people are following along and cooking in their kitchen. So the the, the access code is Kevin1Month uh, to get your 30 days free. Um, I do have a website fireandironman.com that I have up that I'm working on uh, just has a little bio about me and and starting to build out some um, training ideas and and hopefully some plant-based triathlon camps in the future Uh, so just kind of teaching people you know showing them what my weekends look like or a four-day routine for me and and bringing in other athletes and hopefully some other you know one day i'd love to have rip on if rip listens to this i'm going to send it to him but have him come and you know host the whole you know sort of a retreat weekend for athletes and educate them on food and nutrition and exercise and lifestyle and how all that stuff ties together that's great kevin thank you so much for coming on the show today this was an absolute pleasure and good luck with your training for lake placid thanks matt great to chat with you Okay, thank you so much for listening to that first section with Kevin Duffy. What an awesome guy. Can't wait to catch up with him later on in the year to see how exactly everything's going with him. Before we get into my episode with Sarah, we're going to have a quick ad break and then we'll get right into it. All right, now we are joined by Sarah Lorge Butler from Runner's World. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Oh, I've been meaning to reach out to you for some time. You do such incredible work. Um, so, so many of your peers do as well. Uh, I've always been a big fan of what you've been doing. But more specifically, why I want to get you on the show today 
is to talk about a recent article that you put out that not only is impactful, but certainly something that has um, gained more traction uh, in the short term and in recent years. In the article, I love I love the headline. We just were just talking about this offline. It's not really a headline; it's more of a question, which is like an interesting take on it. I love it. Uh, but it's why aren't more female coaches? in charge of pro teams. So I guess, first of all, Sarah, I don't want to give it away. First of all, everyone should go read this article. So we're not going to do like her summary of the article. I want to take a deeper dive into basically the reporting of this and how it came across uh, the transom to things, something that you wanted to cover or have been covering. So I guess personally, when did this become a topic that you wanted to get involved in covering? Well, I edited an article on this very topic already in 2013. I mean, so eight years ago. So this is nothing new in a sad way. And um, it's just the reason we did it now is because there have been two recent high profile hires for, for new professional teams. And they were both men. And then there was, by contrast, this other hire for a high-profile team. It wasn't the head coaching job, but it was the assistant coaching job where they did it a completely different way. And they actually posted a job. They weren't looking for a woman, but by posting the job, NAZ Elite came. They got 80 applicants. You know, they did 30 interviews. They brought three people to Flagstaff. Two of them were women, and they wound up with a woman. But going back to 2013... A writer by the name of Rachel Sturtz did this story for what was then Running Times, which was, you know, back in the day, Runner's World owned two running brands. One was Runner's World. The other was Running Times, which was more for the front of the Packers. Or for, it was for people who took their running super seriously. So it was like kind of a niche audience. And um, But we wrote about that story for Running Times. Now it lives on under the Runner's World umbrella on runnersworld.com. But I mean, here we are eight years later and really nothing has changed. So, um, and I mean, as always, I'm just like kind of, you know, as a, a woman sports writer, there aren't like all that many of us. You're always just kind of keeping an eye out for, um, you know, issues of, of equity and, and opportunity and where people are doing really well and where people aren't. And women's running itself in the United States is in such a great place. Women are so competitive. Why hasn't the coaching, you know, come along? It's not because there aren't talented women coaches. There are. So that's kind of the genesis of all this. Yeah. So you talked about the two pro, basically the three pro teams that are chronicled in the piece. You got, you know, on running, created a team, Puma, and then Nazalit, obviously is something that has been well established for some time, uh, headed by Ben Rosario. Um, and actually funny, I was talking, I, I had an episode last night with Tyler Day, which will come out uh, actually later on today. And he was, you know, kind of talking about, we, we didn't address this topic specifically, but he was talking about his relationships with both coaches over there. So, you know, specifically, we don't have to go like case by case necessarily, but it's interesting with Puma because with Puma, it seems like the, the athletes that have gone under their flagship with um, their rollout of this whole, you know, Nitro running shoe series. And then they've aligned this with signing athletes. It seems like the athletes they have, that they have signed and are now putting out to the forefront are female athletes, which brings the, you know, I don't, I don't know if that necessarily validates the coaching move or you wonder like, oh, how is there a disconnect here? Ultimately, when you're doing a story like this, how much do you like weigh the small sample size when you're looking at like, are we have two or three cases for, and then putting into context of larger systemic issues? Well, I mean, running, 
you know, compared to other sports, it's always going to be kind of a small sample size. But I started to try to count pro groups. And even right there, you have a you have a bit of a struggle because like, what is a pro group exactly? You know, I mean, I counted, I think, 21 or 22 of them, but it's kind of hard to say. I mean, so they're the obvious ones. They're like the Nike Bowerman Track Club. I mean, the coach is paid, Jerry Schumacher. All the athletes are paid by Nike, you know. Um, Naz Elite is another one. Um, the Adidas groups. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. So there's some that are just like obviously pro groups. Um, then there are some where like maybe the coach is not really paid that much or maybe the athletes are just they have other full-time jobs, you know, there isn't like a single sponsor behind the group. So it's kind of a gray area, but I counted with the help of Allison Wade, who I work with closely for on the fast women newsletter, but also she does some work from a runner's world. And so together we counted either 21 or 22 groups and we could really only come up with three that had women at the helm, like two cases, Lauren Fleshman and Amy Yoder Begley, where the woman was the head coach. And then one, um, dark, what am I going to, I'm going to, you tell me it's dark sky distance. Is that what it is? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Flying Jeff also that's sponsored by Under Armour and, uh, Shayla Houlihan is like the co-head coach, but that was kind of it, you know? So three out of 22, you tell me, I mean, is that a statistically significant sample? I, I- Absolutely. And it, 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 especially if you, if you bring it down, I know just, you, you talk about pro teams in here. But, you know, Dystat put out an article yesterday or last night, you know, detailing, um, you know, the the basically the same the same question, but for Division One athletics and with with, you know, it with basically the, the headline, the headlining part of it was the recent success of four of the top five teams on the, in the women's cross country were headed by female head coaches, despite the fact that only 17, I think the number is like 17 percent of Division One teams have a female head coach. Right. I think I saw Allison tweeting yesterday a graphic from the Tucker Center where cross country uh, women cross country coaching got an F grade because fewer than twenty percent of the coaches were were women in that sport. So yeah, it's kind of disheartening for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not good. All right, so when you're pursuing an article like this, right? Obviously, when you're doing a feature story on a, on somebody, it's very different than when you're doing an article like this, which is, you know, going to, you know, I guess, which can, I guess, how do I phrase this correctly? Where some people may end up looking bad in the article. So when you're, when you're pursuing an article like that, how hard is it for you to get people to speak on the record about the topic? Okay. A couple of things there just that I want to say is like, first of all, in the case of this article, no one has anything bad to say about Dathan Ritzenhain or Alastair Craig, the two men who got those jobs. Okay. No one is criticizing them. Everybody in fact is like, especially about Dathan, they're like, he's the greatest guy ever, you know, (laughs) nor is anybody criticizing the fact that these groups exist because they show growth in the sport. They show investment in the sport and they show most important is opportunity for athletes, you know, young athletes coming out of college can pursue running as a career and see how good they can be. I mean, that's kind of what it's all about. So I don't have a beef with them and nor does anybody that I interviewed. Um, okay. So then the second thing is, I think it's really just important that everybody realize that it's, a, you have to give the companies a chance to respond. I mean, it's kind of like journalism one-on-one, like you cannot write an article that's critical of Puma or on 
and um, not get a comment from Puma or on. And I feel like some running journalists, I will not call anybody out, but they can be kind of sloppy about this. They can like, they can write their opinion pieces almost and not really ask the person that they're criticizing about to give a response or to stand up for themselves. So I wanted to make sure, you know, I did that. Um, And I, I think I was, I was fair. Like I didn't initially hear from on. And so I actually tried to call them and I actually had a phone conversation, you know, and it was good. I'm glad I did because they gave a good comment. So, um, so anyway, then going back to your question about how hard it is to get people on the record, you know, I would just say running is a small insular world. And a lot of these people are friends with each other. Like they don't have anything bad to say, but whatever anybody is criticizing, it is the process. It is not the people. So the process by which these men landed their jobs. They're not, that's what the criticism is. They're not critical of, you know, the people themselves or even the companies. I mean, everybody's thankful for on and Puma's investments in running. So I don't know. It wasn't hard to get women to just say, you know, like, look, you know, there's just, there are some structural, like Dina Evans spoke plainly. She was great, but she's a little bit on the periphery. Um, you know, I spoke to briefly to Rita Gary and to Andrea Grove McDonough just about their experiences with women's coaching. And again, they just didn't want to do anything to burn any bridges like for their athletes. And, the, you know, they just wanted to be largely positive about it. It wasn't, but, it, it, you know, they were happy to talk about this situation. Sometimes, sometimes it's really difficult. I did a story back in the end of October about some of the problems at New York Roadrunners. And that one relied heavily on unnamed sources. And, um, I got a little pushback from that on that from New York Roadrunners. Ultimately, I had like three people on the record out of, I can't remember how many I talked to a lot. It was well into the double digits. I think it was 18 or something like that. And I wish I had had more people on the record, of course, but they felt like, you know, their jobs, their severances, their, you know, yeah, their future earnings were at risk. And I was understanding of that. So, yeah, exactly. Because it is a small world. And, you know, you, you um, it's understandable why people want to express their opinions on background or off the record while not trying to limit themselves professionally going forward. And not everyone's in a position to either be, you know, at the pinnacle of their sport where their repercussions isn't something they have to think about or that they're, they're, they're at the end of their career, which gives them maybe the feeling of, OK, I can really air it out now because there, there are no next steps here. Um, for me. Yeah, exactly. And I think some, like, I think the best sources for that are kind of like recently retired athletes, but like, I'll have these conversations with agents that are kind of dizzying that are like, okay, we're on the record. Okay. We're off the record. All right. All right. Back on the record, you know? And, um, (laughs) you know, yeah, you can understand that nobody wants to burn bridges and you can, you can understand that. So yeah. (laughs) Thanks for asking. Oh, no problem. And you went, you took great pains in this article. I mean, I say great pains. You make it very clear. And as a reader, you, I can like see your mind at work. Like I am not bashing Stephen Haas or Ben or David Ritzenhein here. This is not about them, you know, and you, you, you make that very clear and you set the context several times. You just talked about that. This was the people you got to, to speak for the article and people that you talked to, they were much more worried about or concerned about the process. So, what was the process in this case or in these cases? 
Okay, so just to be absolutely clear about it, I mean, Ann said that they conducted five interviews and two were women, and then they ultimately landed on Dathan. I mean, and I, you know, I believe them. I take them at face value on that. So they didn't seem to like post a job or if they did, I didn't notice it. Maybe there was a posting, but I think if there was a posting for a pro group, they would have gotten, I don't know, maybe I, I, I don't, I can't say for sure. I, um, so I posed the same question though to, to Puma and just said, how many people were interviewed and did you interview any women? And they just got back to me with the statement that they interviewed many people. They didn't specify that any were women. Um, and it just, I, I don't know. Again, it seems like, I think it seems like Amy Craig is going to at some point possibly come on um, as an assistant coach or maybe a co-head coach. I'm not sure with, with Alistair, her husband. And um, they're and I'll, I'll cut you off there. I said Stephen Haas before because I was thinking of Dark Sky. I meant to say Alistair Craig. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, no problem. And um, I, I, anyway, they were kind of, you know, talking about Amy and what she's going to bring. But she's when I filed the story, she wasn't yet official. I mean, I think it was changing day to day. She might be official by now. I'm not sure. Um, so, but again, it just didn't seem like a very wide net was cast um, because some of the women whose names come up often for these types of openings, you know, are the same people. And they weren't, you know, they didn't even know about them. They just kind of were like, oh, well, here we are. We have these, you know, we had, there were these openings. And then by contrast, I already outlined the process that NAZ Elite went through, um, which was just very transparent. I mean, they put the job posting on their website and like that sort of thing never happens. And I'm not saying this is just a running industry problem. I mean, a lot of people get their jobs through word of mouth. I mean, that's like the first piece of job seeking advice that anybody ever gives or gets, which is to build your personal network. So this is not a problem that's unique to running, but it just, you know, from what little I can tell, and I don't have the whole picture, it seemed like largely personal relationships came into play in the on hire and the um, Puma hire. And NAZ just took a different, they just took a different approach. They cast a very wide net, they posted a job and they, they did it differently. So that's, I was just trying to, you know, paint that contrast. Right. And it's interesting because when I think about a job, the you know, jobs like the ones you're talking about, obviously there's a certain amount of expertise that comes into play with being an elite level running coach, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And just assuming that all these candidates have kind of reached reach that minimum threshold that is acceptable for those positions. You know, I can see why, ha, you know, while, while relying on personal relationships would be so important for a coaching position, which is so often a very communication and relationship heavy position, right? That's a lot of times that is, that is the coaching element that, that, that can be the differentiating factor. But you, what you bring up is also that the, the idea of like the difference between like a strong tie and a weak tie, when going through potential candidates and and understanding like, all right, is this person worthwhile? And, and going through your network in a, in a much larger sense of, all right, who, who can we trust? Who are good people, right? Like it's not to say like Ben Rosario didn't ask people, you know, when, when he was going through his hire, like, Hey, is this person trustworthy? How, how, are, how are her communication skills? How are, how are this guy's relationship possibilities and things like that? Um, I think it's also like how wide of a net within your own network are you using and are you being proactive versus reactive in the search? 
Right. I mean, I'd agree with all that. I, I, yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I'm sure, you know, when you apply for a job, you have to give references and it helps if your reference knows the, you know, (laughs) knows the hiring manager. So, um, you know, I'm sure, um, yeah, I'm sure there was like some vetting going on that way. Um, but right. How, how wide a net was cast, I guess, is just, you know, the question that I, that I have and still remains. And I just hope going forward that maybe the NAZ elite model sort of comes, these, these openings don't come around all that often, especially at the pro level. I mean, how often do you have two companies founding teams within the same, you know, eight month period? Like not often. (laughs) So these jobs aren't going to turn over all that frequently and it's, they're big jobs. And with, with probably substantial budgets, you know, for, for both the coach and to bring the athletes on. And it would just, you know, you just hope that you just hope that a lot of candidates are considered and given a serious like look and shake and given a chance to interview. Absolutely. And the same thing could be said for high profile college jobs. You know, for a lot of people, those jobs can be lifetime jobs. You see a lot of coaches that have been at their schools for a number of years, decades even, be just because they're much more, um, you know, when you think about pro jobs versus college jobs, this isn't like the NBA where like, oh, I don't have to recruit anymore and I can make millions of dollars, you know, even without having to recruit 18-year-olds. This is great, right? Perfect scenario, right? Like the, the pro job is very is very different versus a college job, which is why you look at BYU. Obviously, Ed Iastone has been, you know, a force there for some time, but then Dill G. Taylor comes and is, you know, on par with him in every way in terms of her ability to connect, recruit and um, improve athletes performance. And you just see that and you're like, all right, this is this is huge, not only because, well, she's doing a great job and she's a good coach and she was a good hire, no matter, you know, uh, her gender, but also because like this, that, that's a prime time school. Right. And you wonder, as opposed to it, sometimes you get like the trickle up effect. Of like, hey, people get hired at lower level jobs, then they kind of percolate to the top. I wonder, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, if you can see like a trickle down effect. You'd see, again, four of the top five teams in the NCAA cross country this year had a women's head had a head coach of, of the women's team who was a woman or is a woman, I should say. Do you think that that will then trickle down or are you maybe a little more skeptical about its long-term uh, effect? I mean, yeah, I think, I just think, a lot of people are making like calling attention to that. And I, I think just publicity and awareness of coaching roles is growing. And I, so I do think even though we're not anywhere close to where we should be now, I, I do think it's really helpful to have um, so many high profile women in those programs doing so well at NCAAs. It's helpful to have people writing about it. And um I really, I really hope it will change the demographics, you know, going forward, whether it is like assistant coaching positions or maybe next time there is a head coach opening, you know, a a woman is recruited from that assistant role and brought to be the head coach. I mean, that's what you, you know, that she can climb the ladder. So I hope we're trending in the right direction. It's kind of impossible to tell. I think we just need to keep talking about it, keep raising these issues, you know, and, um, you know, hopefully we'll see some progress. I mean, I guess it's funny. I had this conversation with Allison. I'm like, I thought we were, I think we're doing better in the college ranks. And she's like, actually, the numbers don't bear that out. She's like, you have that impression that we're doing better in the college ranks, but, but the numbers are still dismal. So 
Um, I think it's important for us as an industry to just make sure that the change is real and not just like, um, Oh, remember back in 2021 when, you know, four of the top five program or, you know, finisher programs at NCAAs had women coaches, like, like, let's make sure that actually, you know, means something. Right. All right. So, um, you talked about some high profile women who are coaching professional teams. We got, you know, we got Lauren Fleshman, Amy Yoder Begley. Um, we also have you know, Chilane Flanagan is now in the coaching mix over Bowman Track Club as well. The one thing that all of them, one of the, one of the things that they all have in common is that they were all extremely good runners and, you know, well thought of in the industry. Um, you know, these, these basically like titans within the sport during their running career. With that said, is there a gap here for women who maybe weren't at that level, but that, you know, being as a runner, because ultimately being that level of runner is not what can make you a high level coach as evidenced by just look over on the men's side. A lot of the top men's coaches weren't like the greatest of all time. And that was their feeding system. And you can look at it any other sport as well, that there isn't this one-to-one relationship in terms of running ability and coaching ability. And yet here we are, we see like the, the women who have gotten chances are all coming from the top of their field into it. Again, that's not, this is not a negative on that, but I think it seems like another next step could just be digging deeper within the potential pool for people who fit potential qualifications and aren't just, you know, names within the industry who can also coach in part because of their elite speed uh, when they were when they were pros. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I don't think you have to have been to an Olympic Games to be a great coach, you know, and I um, again, I think men are sort of given a lot more leeway in terms of their own athletic credentials and women have to have been like at the top of their sports to even be considered. And I think that's wrong. You know, you're, what you're, the point you're making is absolutely right. That to be a good coach, you know, I I guess it helps to understand the lifestyle, to understand what it takes, but like having an elite, elite speed is not the only way to gain that understanding, you know, especially at the pro level or, or the college level. Like you can still be a very successful coach without having reached the upper echelons of the sport. And I think it's time we allow. Yeah, I think, again, it's just time to cast a wider net and not make that like a prerequisite for anyone, you know, men or women, but especially women, because they seem to be held to that standard. Yeah, well. Thank you for all the work you're doing. This article was um, was really good. You did a great job. I know it was well received. I saw, after I read it, I saw it shared everywhere. So, congratulations! Uh, can you share what you're working on now? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm working on you know a bunch of you know. So it's funny. There's like a mix between the sort of daily stories, like you had said at the beginning, like the little profiles, you know, the excellence in the masters running and the just elite ranks. Like I just written a profile of Heather McLean a couple of weeks ago, which I just really enjoyed. She was somebody I didn't know a lot about. And um, I enjoyed learning about her and just writing a, a profile of her um, kind of big systemic issues. I'm always sort of interested in, um, you know, I'm looking at, I'm just looking at about a, a lot about sponsorship right now and what's going on in this current sponsorship environment. And there's just a lot of, I think the last thing to say is there's a lot of secrecy in running. Um, this came up a little bit reporting the coaching story is like really no one knows how much the athletes make. The athletes only know how much they make, but they're not. Well, the agents know. 
the agents do know. The agents know. So like there is secrecy, but there's also not because there's like not a ton of agents and they all know what their athletes are making. Right. And I mean, shocker, Matt, but like I found <laughs> about nine agents that like represent distance runners and only one of them, Karen Locke, is a woman, you know, so really the power in the sport is with these eight dudes, you know, who I have personal relationships with a lot of them and I, I like them and enjoy them. I love hearing what they have to say, but again, like let's, you know, we need to do, we could do better here, you know? Um, so yeah, and that's something that I've been sort of like nibbling around at the periphery and hoping to write something about that, um, coming up shortly in the next couple of weeks. I love it. And are you going to Eugene end of June for the trials? I live in Eugene now. So, um, oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so when runner's world was going through its, you know, changes a couple of years ago, my husband was offered a job teaching journalism at the university of Oregon. And, um, we seem like that seemed like that was a good thing to do for our family. So he teaches out here at the U of O and I cover running. It's a great place to be to cover running. So can't wait for that. And hopefully we will all be vaccinated and there'll be fans and we can have a big party on the off day during the trials. That's my plan. So yeah, I'm excited. There you go. Well, don't tell, don't tell your professor husband that I failed to do my research on <laughs> where the person lived that I was interviewing. No, that's <laughs> because okay. That was a faux pas. That's okay. It still feels like pretty new to us too. So no problem. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Matt. All right, Kevin and Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Also, if you want to, or if you can, I should say, hit me up over on Instagram after I post this podcast episode over in the feed uh, and let me know what you think about this two-part episode feature. Uh, I like it. I love talking to Sarah and I certainly love doing these feature stories on all these amazing athletes and it'd be nice to kind of combine both into the Rambling Runner podcast whenever applicable. Uh, also, so many of you send me articles like, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And I'd really... I, you know, I'll end up DMing people back and forth about those articles and kind of have a deeper dive conversation, but I haven't really been able to do it on the podcast. So I think this is a way of doing both. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for our sponsors, uh, Paper Trails Greening Company, OS First, and Beam. Love all of these companies. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.